Welcome back to another episode of Don't Tell the Babysitter Mom's Dead, a podcast hosted by me, Brittany Ashley, where once a month, pending a crumbling democracy and worldwide pandemic, I interview a new guest who's lost their mother, and then we do a deep dive into a pop culture moment with authentic dead mom representation. Welcome to season three. We are almost a year into this pandemic, and I hope everyone is taking care of themselves with little support from our government and a little support for healthcare workers, the death toll is rising, especially here in Los Angeles. A few friends' parents have passed away from COVID and it feels like grief is becoming more and more of a group project every day. This episode is quite a gut punch. Pretty much all the episodes of this podcast thus far have been a guest recounting memories of their mom or their dad, or in some cases, both. And there's a before and an after, you know, before my mom died, after my mom died, a line in the sand. But this episode's guest had a different experience. She never got the memories, the before or the after, only bits and pieces of other people's memories that she's had to cobble together and ultimately mourning a life that she never got to have. This episode, I interviewed Zan Poka. Zan works in artist management and is a part-time drag queen. When Zan was one year old, she and her mom were in a car accident. Zan survived, but unfortunately, the accident was fatal for her mom. So my mom was born in El Salvador, and she came to the U.S. like in the 70s. And then she met my dad. They were introduced through some mutual friends, and they were really only together for like five or six years. Um, you know, they dated for a couple years. They got married. They were married for like a year and then my mom got pregnant. So it's like another year. And then another year later, my mom died. So a very short time period, um, but obviously lasting impact. My mom had me when she was 40, was only around for a year. So she died like, you know, really young. That's, I know it's like sort of close to middle age, but she had a whole life ahead of her. She didn't get to have which is really hard to think about. My mom was also told that she couldn't have kids. So it's like just like a million things in one that she didn't really get to experience. And I know that when she actually did get pregnant, she was like, wait, what? And I was just like this total surprise. But from what everyone tells me, I was just like her pride and joy. She was so excited to be a mom loved it, loved everything about me. And that's, you know, what you hope for with any parent. And that's just really what she wanted. And she got it. And then it was gone. My mom died in a car accident. My dad had been transferred to DC for work. And so we were caravanning across the country. And my mom lost control of the car. It flipped over a bunch of times and she died on impact. I was actually in the car and was thrown onto the street, miraculously like came out unscathed. I think because babies are just like little drunk blobs. So there's like no bracing for impact or nothing. So I guess that's fortunate. And then my dad was actually following behind. So fortunately, he was not in the car. Otherwise, I would have just been orphaned from there on out. But unfortunately, he saw the whole thing happen, which I don't know how he gets out of bed. And I know that like when tragedies happen, parents, you know, just like forge or like go forward and they have to take care of their kids. And that's like their driving force. But I I just can't imagine what a horrifying day that must have been 
to not only watch your wife die, but then your only kid is on the side of the road. You have no idea if they're alive, they're dead, what. And like, I feel like I would just have nightmares forever. But, you know, my dad did what he could. We went to DC for a year and there was sort of this idea that like everybody was really pitching in to take care of me. Um, My dad worked so much that it wasn't like, logistically, it like wasn't feasible to like take me to daycare every day and then like leave me at daycare for God knows how many hours. And so I was taken care of by two distant cousins, well, like bloodwise distant, but you know, close relationship wise. But they took care of me Monday through Friday. I lived with them. And then I would go home for the weekend with my dad. And when we moved back to San Francisco, same thing. I lived with my great aunt Monday through Friday, and then I went to school. It's super, super weird to think about how I have this like prolific figure in my life that should be there and, you know, coulda, shoulda, woulda, like all these things who isn't there, but it's just like this sort of like looming figure. And as an adult, it is really nice to see that I had so many people taking care of me throughout my whole life. But at the time it was just sort of like, I guess it just felt like I was being passed around and I have this like deep-seated idea that I am dispensable, that I can just be passed around and not everybody has to be in my life. And again, in retrospect, it took a village and I had a village of all these people that just loved me so much and took care of me, but it really just instilled this idea that I was alone and I was just kind of on my own that I only had myself to rely on. You had said that your dad remarried when you were five. Can you tell me about kind of how that came to be and what was going on around that time? Yeah. Um, so my stepmom is actually was actually a family friend. You know, El Salvador is super, super small. And then the immigrant community is even smaller. But again, like introduced through mutual friends. I honestly like don't remember a time without my stepmom. I've just been calling her mom since day one. Like, I think at some point my dad was like, hey, this is your new mom. Like, please refer to her as such. But I was so little that I don't remember any of that. And it was like, you know, a pretty smooth transition into that. And it's like to the point where it feels really weird and disrespectful to call her anything but mom. But obviously for the purposes of this podcast, I will refer to her as my stepmom to avoid, you know, confusion. But yeah, I mean, she has raised me almost since the beginning. And even if we had a contentious relationship growing up, I mean, I had a contentious relationship with my dad too, but she never othered me. She never guilt tripped me into being like, you know, I don't have to be here. I'm doing this great thing for you. She has just been there. She didn't treat me differently than her other kids. Um, She had two kids that are much older and they were out of the house by the time they got married. But I was just the third kid. And her whole family, too, has never othered me either. Like, I forget that none of us are technically related. Having that was great, uh, mostly because my dad can't cook. And I don't know what I would have eaten my whole life. (laughs) Um, And my stepmom is a phenomenal cook. You know, being raised by a single parent would have been such a different experience. But having like that vacancy filled so early on and not really having any memories of there being that vacancy, I think has added to me like judging my feelings about like how sad I am about everything that happened. Like I am not allowed to feel these things because A, I don't remember anything that happened and B, like I have had this parent. I had two parents that were looking out for me and taking care of me. 
I am for sure like 100% grateful for it. Uh, but it it does add like another layer of just like weirdness in everything that I feel about it. So how old were you when you were told that your biological mom had passed away? Same thing. It was really seamless. I don't remember a time where I didn't know. I know that my great aunt talked about her a lot when I was, you know, three years old. So I just, I always knew. And even like with my my dad marrying my stepmom, like I want to say that like I wasn't really conscious of like this vacancy being filled. It just was what it was. And as a little kid, you don't understand the complexities of what it is to be an adult. And, you know, not everything is black and white. I guess in a sense, it is kind of nice that there wasn't this like line of before and after and that it just mm-hmm. kind of was this gradual transition into the life that I have now. Obviously, I, I wish I remembered my biological mom uh, yeah, and I course. wish I had like a little more time to like create memories. But again, it's nice that I didn't have to feel like the gravity of crossing that line. My stepmom and I like, we don't really talk about our feelings. So we don't really talk about my biological mom, but again, not because anybody feels weird about her being my stepmom or anything, but just, that's just like our relationship. But it is really nice knowing that she knew her, she knew, you know, all kinds of things about her and understood my situation. Also just like culturally, it's really nice to have had like another Salvadorian woman raising me. So I had that tie on top of, you know, whatever other ties I had to my biological mom. And again, it was never a secret. My dad, you know, would talk about her all the time. We have pictures in the house. We have things that she made. She was an artist. Um, so they're like little things that she made around the house. And whenever my stepmom finds something of hers, like in the garage, you know, she calls me and she's like, Hey, I have this thing for you. You know, it'll be here next time you come visit. And then, you know, we kind of make like a little bit of small talk about it. In a very, very weird way, it is nice to know that they like had a relationship and again, just like added to it being so seamless of a transition. My mom is, or my stepmom is just like very stoic. She worked a lot. Both my parents worked a lot. Both of them were, you know, stressed out all the time. They're not exactly sure what to do with kids. And, you know, my stepmom got married in the 70s, had kids because it's just what was expected of women. But like my house was like a museum. I would go to my friends' houses all the time because they had siblings and they had candies, snacks that my mom wouldn't let me have and like go mini golfing or like run around places. And then, you know, when I got older, we just like never talked about like feelings or anything like that. Like I never wanted to go to my parents for advice, either of them. And again, it wasn't because she was my stepmom or anything. It just like, that's just kind of how it was. I would watch my friends and their moms talk about things, go to lunch and like do these things. And I wished that I had that. What I was really grateful for was because I spent so much time at my friends' houses, uh, I was sort of ingratiated into like a couple families. At some point, my best friend from kindergarten, I started going on vacation with her family for like the better part of a month. And it was sort of the joke that I was like the milkman's kid because I didn't quite look like the rest, but I knew her whole family. Like I went on vacation with them and her mom, she actually died like almost exactly a year ago. But I, when I went up for the funeral, my friend told me that when we were in kindergarten, her mom noticed that like my parents weren't really around at school functions, which in and of itself, like you can't shame parents for not being there during the workday. 
but her mom just kind of noticed. And when we started hanging out and having these sleepovers or whatever, her mom really looked out for me and like made sure that I felt a part of the family and felt included in things. And even when I moved away at eight, like that never stopped. Her mom remembered my favorite sandwich. She remembered my favorite snacks. Yeah. She would ask me how I was doing and like really have these conversations. And again, like during that super tumultuous time between middle school and high school, we would like have really good talks. And I felt so safe and so part of that family when she died last year, I mean, it really was like losing a mom all over again. It's like interesting how I sort of just like glommed onto these other families. I guess it feels inevitable and pretty obvious, but I just like loved hanging out with my friends' moms. And to this day, like, you know, when friends are in town or I'm in town, like I'll have lunch with my friend and their mom, just sort of like having all these pseudo moms around and like surrounding myself with them to like, I guess, try to make myself feel better as a teenager. The the warmth is what you were seeking, perhaps? A hundred percent. And I yeah. think hearing, you know, from literally everyone, <laughs> anytime I meet someone that hasn't seen me in a while, they're like, wow, like you're just like your mom. By the way, mm. your mom loved you so much. You have no idea. Loved you, loved you, loved you, which great to hear. Um, but hard again, when you're going through that and you're like, well, maybe I could have had this whole life. I don't know. Yeah. And then it you know, becomes about being sad about this like life that you've built that's not even real. But I definitely was filling a void. Um, even though physically there was somebody in that space, I, you know, everybody needs some kind of emotional support. Um, and I just was looking for that constantly. I, I find myself still doing it, even though I'm like, you got, again, you got to chill out. <laughs> It's like, no matter how old we are as an adult, self-reliant, uh, it's just, you know, you're still looking for it. And then I also wonder like, what's going to happen when I'm a parent? I'll give my kids exactly what I was missing, but, yeah. um, it is interesting. So the word I keep coming back to is weird. Like everything I feel like my life, my situation is just weird. It always came up when I would talk about my siblings because I would say like, oh, my sister. And people would be like, oh, like what grade is your sister? And I'm like, no, she's 20 years older than me. Like she's not in any grade. <laughs> and she's they'd be in like 19th grade. <laughs> yeah, right. She uh, just had to repeat a couple of years. Like, don't worry about it. <laughs> when I would bring that up, people would be like, wait, so how does like how old is your mom? Like, how does that work? First of all, it does happen with like people's biological siblings, but I would just be like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Like my my mom is my stepmom and she had two kids in her previous marriage. So like these are my step siblings. And people would be like, oh, okay. And then what happened? And then, you know, I think we all go through this where we say what happened and everyone's just like, oh my God, I'm so sorry, which is like lovely, but it's usually very dramatic. <laughs> and for me especially. I think, you know, I've definitely inherited some of my stepmom's stoicness about things, but I'm just like, it's, it's fine. Like I'm, sometimes I make jokes about having a dead mom. Like it's, it's okay. Can you please stop? Like I, these are the facts. Can we move on? And I think that also makes other people uncomfortable because they're like, well, why don't you have feelings about it? I'm like, listen, I, I have a lifetime of therapy set up for me. I do have feelings <laughs> about it just in this moment. This is like how I talk about it. And then again, like on the flip side, it's like, well, you have too many feelings about this. And especially with friends who have lost parents who, you know, had a life with their parents or like lost them much older when they had memories and, you know, things to go off of, I guess. 
I never felt comfortable really talking about it because inherently our situations are so different. But then I'd be like, well, you don't remember your mom and you had this vacancy filled. So you are not allowed to be sad about this and you are not allowed to talk about this with anybody else as if you know, you're know you on equal footing because you're not. The number one rule in therapy is don't judge your emotions. But I've spent an entire life trying to, I guess, tiptoe around the subject around other people and judging my emotions 24-7. Do you think that it's a way to kind of like outsmart your own vulnerability to the situation? For sure. I have such a hard time being vulnerable with people. And that, you know, comes from the abandonment issue of like, well, don't let people into your life because they will break your heart and they will leave, whether it's intentional or because they die. You know, I wanted so badly to be an island and no man is an island, but I was like, but I could at least try. I just have a really, really hard time letting people into my life. And I could tell any story and I pretty much will just like take out all the emotion and just like list the facts. But on the inside, I'm like, (laughs) I'm sad all the time about this. Like, this is wild. You got to stop. When or why did you feel like you couldn't feel sad for this loss? I guess as soon as I saw like other kids' parents die in school or like somebody brought it up, there was just always that nagging thought in the back of my head that was like, you cannot be sad about this. Like listening to these people talk about their memories with their parents and the things that they're going to miss. I was just like, you don't have any of that. Like there's no reason for you to be sad. And like, you know, you think babies don't remember anything. But what I didn't understand was like, because of everything that happened, there was just like this inherent sadness that I couldn't help. And, you know, up until I figured that out, like in my late teens, early 20s, there was just that judgment. I was putting that on other people thinking that they were judging me and maybe they were, maybe they weren't. But in my head, it was like, they think you're such an asshole. Like, stop talking about it. (laughs) When did you start to be aware of like attachment theory and that this loss is something that you can mourn? Live journal when I was in high school. (laughs) (laughs) Let's talk about that. Yeah. What a wild time. The internet was like the wild west uh, in the early 2000s, which I think about all the time. God, anybody who doesn't know makes me feel so old. Um, It's just like an online journal, uh, like a blog, I guess, the precursor to Tumblr. But all of a sudden, there are all these very sad people who had a place to write their feelings and share them with strangers. And of course, you know, I had a live journal with my friends and then I would peruse all these like various groups. And one day, I don't even know like where I found it, but I came across some strangers post and it was like, here's what an attachment order disorder is. And then these are the symptoms. And I was like, okay, well, check, check, check. And I like went down the entire list and there was like maybe one that I didn't check off. And I was just like, oh, okay. Like that's what's quote unquote wrong with me. Um, That explains so, so much of my life. And it was, you know, kind of a relief to be able to contextualize it, especially because I'd spent my life being like, you are not allowed to feel like this. And so to know that like, I can't help it um, was nice. And then when I finally, finally, finally put myself in therapy way too late in my 20s, that's like pretty much all I worked through. (laughs) But yeah, it usually occurs, I guess, 
with kids under three that lose a primary caregiver or parent. Um, someone can correct me if I'm wrong. I work in entertainment and I don't know anything, but um, <laughs> it just like it form it like gives you subconsciously these ideas of not being important, of feeling dispensable, um, of like always, always seeking, you know, someone to fill that hole. So yeah, like I said, total relief to find it, but then also like, well, shit, (laughs) I have to still deal with all of these things. The judgment didn't stop, but once I hit probably like, I think I was like 22 or 21 in college, I was like, okay, you have to go see a therapist. I put it off forever because like therapy is just not a thing in, you know, when your parents are immigrants, but I was like, you're losing it. (laughs) You have to get a handle on your life. Like you're so sad all the time. This is like not a way to function. And so I went to like, you know, the on-campus therapist that they had available and I hated them. <laughs> so then I was like, well, I guess therapy is not for me. And then probably like two years later, when I was like 23 or 24. Same thing. I was like, you need to get a handle on your life. Your life is just going to be so shitty and you're going to have such a hard time navigating things as things get more complicated if you don't start working through this. So I finally found a therapist who I loved and I saw her on and off for years. And the bulk of what I worked through is like understanding that people can be in my life and love me and support me even if they don't have to be. To this day, like still have a really hard time with that. And I have to remind myself, like take it slowly and just remind yourself that just because this person is not related to you, has no real obligation to you, they still can love and support you and be there for you. God, I was like so mean to my therapist sometimes. Um, But she really, really tried to be like, First of all, like the inside of your head must be a hellscape. But just because, you know, you pay me and you're only here once a week does not mean that I do not care about you. I want to see you succeed. I know like things have been so hard for you and I I care. And I was like, mm, that's a tactic. You're trying to get you're trying to get me to fall for this and I am not. But obviously in retrospect, like she she was trying so hard, just trying to do her job. I feel so bad. <laughs> she was so nice. <laughs> I loved her a lot. <laughs> Again, like relief to understand where these things are coming from. But also now I have that task that I'm probably going to have to like work through for years, if not my whole life, but at least I can identify it. And when it's starting to happen and I'm in my head about it, I can like take a minute and be like, you know what, we're going to pause this and then we're going to sleep on it and you'll be okay in the morning and understand like people love you. Yeah. With the new year, it's a great time to take stock of if you're really following your happiest and most fulfilling path. For a fresh perspective, I highly recommend an astrology reading from Truly Divine. Astrology and numerology can be excellent tools for self-awareness and self-discovery. They help you learn more about your psychological tendencies, personality traits, emotional triggers, and general life direction. I got both my natal chart and my numerology analysis, and they were super extensive. I got a 70-page analysis specifically catered to my unique birth chart. It's incredibly in-depth, easy to understand, and is essentially a blueprint of my life. Parts of the analysis completely rinsed me, like, your desire to be of service to others is sincere. However, it may be blocking you from seeing the necessity of working on your own inner development. Okay, 
couch. <laughs> but then other parts made me feel super warm and felt very relevant to this podcast. For instance, you're a safe haven to other sensitive people who recognize your compassion and understanding. When you found your niche in life, you have all the talents and intelligence for great success. Seek out work that allows your sensitive nature to flourish. Be the glue that binds others together. If you want to get your natal birth chart analysis, relationship analysis, solar return forecast, or relocation analysis, go to trulydivine.com. That's T-R-U-L-Y-D-I-V-I-N-E.com. And if you use my discount code JAN21, so that's J-A-N, and then the numbers 21, all one word, you will get 25% off. It Takes Two was a 1995 film starring America's favorite twins, Mary-Kate and Ashley Olsen. The duo really cornered the market on twin hijinks films, and It Takes Two was their fourth and arguably most successful film. Similar to the parent trap premise, but minus the DNA matching stuff, two preteen girls meet and decide they want to set up their parental figures to fill in the missing pieces of their life. Amanda, the tomboyish home run king with a New York accent, is an orphan who's super close with the orphanage caretaker, Diane. Diane would adopt her, but since she doesn't make enough money on her salary and she's unmarried, the authorities won't let her, which feel free to take a moment with that one. Meanwhile, private jet-setting Alyssa is staying in one of her many summer homes with her widowed dad, Roger, and their butler, Vincenzo. Basically, Amanda and Alyssa are from two different walks of life. One wears an old Yankees hat, and the other wears a flower sun hat. The only thing they have in common is their identical fucking looks. Amanda feels out of place in the world as an orphan. She feels like she's missing out on family, but not fake family like the truly bizarre Staten Island butt kisses who collect kids and want to adopt her so she can work at the landfill, but real family. She wants to feel wanted. Abandonment issues, anyone? They're the best I can do. Frankie's right. I am a reject. You're not a reject. It's just that most people want to adopt babies. I know. This orphan stuff is like growing up in a dog pound. Everybody wants a puppy. Just once I'd like to sleep in my own room. The only person she really feels connected to is warm mom energy, Diane. Meanwhile, Alyssa was fine with just her dad after her mom passed away when she was born. But Alyssa feels booted out of her own family when self-centered socialite Clarice Kensington shows up as Roger's new fiancé. Then, when Roger decides to break the news that he and Clarice will be married next month and says, she will be your new mother. Isn't that exciting? You're finally going to have a real family. Which, yikes, Roger. Fulfilling the trope of an evil stepmother who wants to replace and erase the dead mom rather than fill in to support the daughter she left behind, Alyssa would rather be an orphan than be Clarice's daughter. Amanda, Diane, and the other orphans go to Camp Calloway, which also happens to be Alyssa's late mom's pet project. And this is how the two not-twins but entirely identical kids' worlds intersect. Alyssa wants to be an orphan and Amanda wants to have a family. They want what the other one has. So they switch places and plan on setting up Roger with Diane. While they switch places, Amanda loves having Roger as a dad playing croquet and splashing around in an indoor pool, and Alyssa is enjoying her orphan life, making pottery and playing with a bunch of kids, 
not to mention being around Diane. It is two. How else do you think I'm going to catch a guy, huh? I don't know. Uh-huh. I don't know. Uh-huh. 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 There's that smile. And that time, I think it went all the way up to your eyes. You remind me of someone. I do? Who? Someone I've never met. Well, how can I do that if you've never met her? Sometimes when I dream, I think I see her. You know, you've been acting just a little bit weirdo today, kiddo. Crazy shit ensues in the film. I don't want to spoil it. But in the end, Alyssa and Amanda both get to have the nuclear family that they've wanted. Two identical children, an orphanage coordinator, and a rich Steve Gutenberg. I like actually just watched it like a couple months ago. My girlfriend and I put it on and I was like, even as an adult, A, it's so good. And B, it just it hits just as hard. But I remember as a kid watching it and, you know, the mom is dead. And so I was like, well, that's a box I'm checking off. B, one of the twins is going through like the foster care system. And, you know, it's that same idea of being passed around and nobody really having an obligation towards taking care of you. And then, you know, you feel dispensable and you feel like you're an island. And she had a lot of that. She was super independent and she was just like, well, like nobody's ever going to take me because I'm not a cute little baby. And her caseworker was just this like lovely woman who looked out for her from the sides and was really trying to do right by her and ended up representing a person who, again, doesn't have to be there, doesn't have to show up, has no obligation other than like her job to, I guess, take care of you in that sense. But showed her unconditional love. The twins meet and then they instantly have this family. And that was another thing that resonated with me because as a kid, I wished so badly that I had a biological sibling and not because my step-siblings were any or less than or anything, but just so I would have somebody that had gone through the same thing that I had, who was on my team, again, unconditionally, and who, you know, I could commiserate with when things weren't great at home. And so watching them meet and, you know, instantly connecting and loving each other and like realizing like, oh my God, I'm not alone in this world was beautiful and also just like made me ugly cry. <laughs> and then, you know, when the caseworker and the dad get married in the end, spoiler alert, they they had this instant family. They had all these people who really, really, really loved them. Yeah. And so do you feel like you related to the film more or do you feel like you saw parts that you longed for or both? Both. It was interesting to see two kids who did lose their mom And they don't remember anything about her. And they still have that sort of like longing for that void to be filled. And especially with Amanda, the one who's in foster care, uh, I think, I feel like they do kind of touch on like abandonment issues, like inadvertently, uh, where, you know, she kind of does like long for a family, even if she won't admit it to herself. So I related to her specifically because of those abandonment issues. And then also just wanting to be so independent and, you know, using fending for herself as a front for, you know, covering up how she really felt about wanting a parent, wanting a family and like, you know, watching other kids have those things that she didn't get to have. Yeah. Um, like, Like her rebelliousness was all tied to the fact that what she actually wanted was the thing that she was so convinced she didn't want. Yeah. And with adopted kids, it's always like, oh, everybody wants a baby. And I think she says that in the movie too. She's like, I'm not going to get adopted. I'm going to, 
end up with like these horrible foster families. Not that they, not that foster families are horrible, but in the movie, they set them up to be horrible. But, you know, she's going to get passed around from house to house and like nobody is ever going to want her and say like, I'm keeping you for good. It doesn't matter what happens. I, I'm here for you now. I've showed up. I've stepped up. And yeah, I think she has a little bit of like, well, I'm an island and I'm putting up this tough front and, you know, I can do everything myself, which like, what is she going to do? She's eight. She's going to live on her own. <laughs> but yeah, just like seeing that reflected was comforting in a way um, and simultaneously so heartbreaking. Yeah. And her tomboyishness felt like gay culture as well. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I was like, I see those overalls. <laughs> Even though that movie was for kids, like again, eight years old, like the heyday of the Olsen twins, it touched on so many things um, that you just really wouldn't expect like a movie for eight year olds to get that deep. Funny enough, this isn't the first or the last time Mary-Kate and Ashley Olsen played the role of a motherless daughter. Famously, they both played Michelle Tanner in Full House, a previous pop culture segment. Michelle is the youngest daughter of three whose mom died when she was a baby, inciting the whole premise of two uncles moving in to help raise them with their dad. They're also motherless in How the West Was Fun. They're also motherless in a film called Billboard Dad where the two twins try to get their widower father a girlfriend. Then, of course, the 2004 hit New York Minute. They have a widower father and a contentious sibling relationship because of the death. And in the TV series Two of a Kind, they also have a widower father. So six out of 17 projects, they have a dead mom. So in Mary-Kate and Ashley movies, there's usually always a widowed father. The twins couldn't be more different from each other, and there's usually a classic switcheroo where they get mistaken for each other. My friend Rachel Handler, a writer at Vulture, did a ranking of every MKA movie ranked by serility. But as Rachel says, the lesson of it takes two is if you run into your doppelganger in the forest, do not question the nature of your identity. Just go with it. And I say, maybe if you're hoping to see an alive mom in the Olsen twin cinematic universe, it's more likely the characters will be in space for a fashion internship. Do you feel like there have been certain moments in your life where you've longed for her the most or you felt the grief the hardest? Spending so much time with my friends' families. I mean, like basically lived at my friends' houses. It was like kind of wild. Yeah. Like watching my friends have those connections with their parents and like, I don't know, going out to lunch with their mom and like talking about X, Y, and Z and watching my friends be so open with their moms was like such a foreign concept to me. Or like even just getting advice from my friends' moms, I was just like, fuck, I wish I had this all the time. I wonder what it would be like to just like not feel alone all the time to have this sort of like guidance and emotional support. I think knowing too how much it's affected my relationships in my day to day. I mean, you know, just like having depression that like wouldn't, that maybe wouldn't have been there if I didn't have like this attachment disorder. If my mom hadn't died before the age of three, I know that my life would be wildly different just in that aspect. My life would just be so, so different. And I just like, not only am I sad about the life that I could have led with my mom, but I also wonder who I would have been. Would I have been more confident? Would I, you know, be doing more with my life? I don't know. I kind of grieve that 
this is sort of fucked up, but my cousin one time made a, just like an offhand comment, like, oh, you're living in a final destination movie. My life has been bookmarked by car accidents. And I don't know if it's one of those things where I notice because like I have it in my head in the same way that someone names a car and all of a sudden you see seven in one day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I feel like I'm in this weird timeline, I guess in terms of like final destination is like, should I have died in that car accident? Am I now living just this like free falling through my life because I wasn't really meant to be here. And I'm just kind of like, I'm waiting for that fatal car accident. (laughs) For whatever fucked up reason, in the back of my head, I was like, you're probably not going to live past 30. I wonder if I like was meant to really go with her and then I didn't. So I'm grateful that I didn't. I'm grateful for my life and I have so many things to be thankful for. And, you know, I've had adventures and great things happen, but still always in the back of my head something lurking the the things that you longed for from her is there any place that you get it from seeing just like the small changes in my friendships where I have made the conscious decision to start being a little more open um I am seeing you know like I am having these better relationships and like things are a little less lonely so that's that's where I see it primarily. I don't have like a mom figure, I guess, right now. The vacancy's open if anybody wants to apply. <laughs> <laughs> uh, out there looking. I don't know where the Tinder for replacement moms yeah. is. <laughs> you can get but, like uh, cosplay. God, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, listen, go to lunch, we'll play baseball. <laughs> I don't know, wear overalls. Um, It's so, so hard to remind myself that like, you got to be open with people. You have to forge these connections or you really will be alone. And that will make you a thousand times more miserable, even if you think that's what you want and that's what's going to protect you. It happens in my platonic relationships. It happens in my romantic relationships. And especially like in romantic relationships, it is something that I like really, really have to work through because it does affect, you know, my partner in that like, I don't even mean to, but like sometimes I just don't give up any information about anything and it's not intentional. It's not that like I'm hiding anything. I just have spent so much of my time being alone and like having this idea of being that island, which I know I keep saying that it just doesn't occur to me to volunteer information. You know, I know this is like a podcast about feelings, but generally I'm like, no, thank you. (laughs) In terms of like having this um, reluctance to be vulnerable and this um, not wanting to be abandoned, how did that coincide with your coming out? Do you feel like it had an effect on that in any way? For sure. I I will say like I didn't really, I didn't make an announcement because I thought that was so annoying. <laughs> and I was like, what? Like now I have to sit down with everybody and have this like tearful thing about like how hard you know, it's been keeping these feelings inside of me. And it's like, no, like one day I just showed up with a girl or like, I don't know, like I was drunk at a party and like making out with everybody. But I was just like, you know what? I'll let people figure it out. And that's that. It's not a big deal. It doesn't need to be a big deal. Here I am with a girl and now everybody knows. Coming out to my family also is super hard because it's like, well, why does it really matter? Like I'm the exact same person that I was last week before you knew. And again, we don't talk about our feelings. So it's like, fuck, now I have to have like, again, this like big conversation that feels bigger than it needs to be. But like, again, in retrospect, it's my lack of vulnerability with people. 
I I really didn't want to have this like feelings filled thing. And in the same way that whenever I tell people, you know, my mom died in these horrible circumstances and I'm just like, stop it. It's not, <laughs> it's not a big deal. It, like I find myself really downplaying things and not making a big deal out of things because I don't want to have these like feelings conversations. Do you feel like you've worked through the inability to be vulnerable? And if so, how? Not totally. I, again, just have to remind myself constantly, like, hey, maybe you should divulge this information to somebody. Maybe you should call your friend and have lunch with them because you never hang out with them one-on-one and have these like deeper conversations. So it's sort of like, I don't know, like putting one foot in front of the other and it is very like slow progression into being better about it. But it's a little bit exhausting having to constantly be like, hey, you really need to do this. And I have definitely gotten better about it. uh, But I mean, I'm not, I haven't really solved this issue completely. (laughs) Last year when my friend's mom died, like hearing that she's been watching out for me my whole life, like sort of added to understanding. Um, And even just like, in my current relationship, I mean, my girlfriend brought it up like pretty early on. Like I, I casually said something, I don't even remember what it was, but she was like, Hey, you know, like as your girlfriend, it's, it doesn't like affect me, but what affects me is that you just don't tell me things. Like, I guess that would have been like a nice thing to know. And that really made me be like, Oh shit. Yeah. Like, I guess you're right. Like it's not, our conversations don't necessarily have to be about like a need to know basis, like I really should be sharing, you know, X, Y, and Z, like this is a partnership. And I think that really set it in stone for me. So it's like wild to think about how like this has been an ongoing theme, but really in the last like year or two, I feel like I've started to make like serious progress on it. Maybe this is me again, judging my feelings again, but it's weird to be sad about just this whole life that you've made up. Um, And it's really, again, easy to fall into that trap of you're not allowed to feel like this. It's interesting to know that there were ramifications, even if I don't remember everything, even if I had that seamless transition and know like, again, like I'm not crazy. Like this is kind of normal for what I went through and just, you know, accepting that and then trying to move forward in life. The most important, and actually I think somebody brought this up on an episode, but um, the idea that grief doesn't go away, which sounds super, super bleak, but really it's sort of going back to like stopping judging your emotions because I think a lot of people put a timeline on their grief and they're like, it's been a year. Like, why are you still sad about this? Like, this is ridiculous and it's out of control and you got to stop. And then, you know, as we all know, that makes it a thousand times worse. Grief just sort of becomes a part of you. And of course it gets easier, but it's also not linear and you will have good days and you'll have bad days. And it's okay that six years later, something reminds you of them and, you know, it makes you cry. I spent my whole life being like, you're not allowed to be sad about this. Also, like now it's 20 years later, like stop. And that made me really like understand that it is okay. Thank you for listening to this episode of Don't Tell the Babysitter Mom's Dead. If you want to find out more about Zan, you can follow her on Instagram at zancestry.com. And yes, I love that handle. If you want to support the podcast on Patreon, you can find it on patreon.com slash deadmomcast. 
I'm Brittany Ashley, and you can follow me at Brit27Ash. That's B-R-I-T-T-27-A-S-H or at BrittanyAshleyFunny.com. The music is by Interstellar Sarah Michelle Geller, and the logo is by Christine Tuna.